This is not an ethnic war. This is not what was happening in Yugoslavia in the 90s. Belarus actually gave an example to the Russian leadership how far you can go in order to subjugate your own people. Putin has not yet used this tactic that Lukashenko used in his own country. So there is a there is a capacity for Putin to go even further. Welcome to Gogolin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners, journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Reka Kingapop, and today I'm talking to Anton Shekhovtsov, Director of the Center for Democratic Integrity and the author of the book Russia and the Western Far Right. He's also a recurring author of Eurozines. In today's episode, we talk about Russian imperialist mythology and how the insane propaganda of Ukraine's denazification came about, the new status of Belarus as a mere vassal state, desertion as a political option, and how Western elites have abandoned their alliances with Vladimir Putin, with a few notable exceptions. This podcast episode is a condensed and edited version of a longer conversation, which is available in its entirety only to our patrons, featuring bonus material about the Biden administration's non-interventionist stance and Donald Trump's surprising comments on Putin's tactical genius. You can become a patron by pledging as little as five euros a month, or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content at patreon.com slash eurozine. Thank you, and let's get into it. So, hi, Anton, and thanks for being with me today. Hello, Rekha. Um, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to meeting you, but for possibly a better occasion or a happier one. But this is what we have right now. So let's talk about Ukraine. We've talked quite some about Ukraine. Uh, you're not a not a very emotional author, and you don't really tell a lot about your own story. I'm not going to tease you on this one, but let us maybe put it out there that you are a native Crimean, um, and you haven't been home in Sevastopol since the annexation of Crimea. So this is also personal. Yeah, this of course is very personal. Um, you know, in I am from Sevastopol. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, Sevastopol, the city of Sevastopol is administratively different from Crimea. So I never actually refer to myself as a person from Crimea. Uh, Sevastopol is a bit different uh, from the rest of Crimea, but, you know, this doesn't really matter right now because, indeed, this is all personal and uh, my country is under attack. We've been saying, my colleagues and I, we've been saying that this would happen for several years now. Uh, few believed us, but now I, d I have no pleasure in saying that we told you so. And yeah, this is what we're having now, and I'm afraid it will become even worse. For the sake of, of listeners who are not very familiar with the ling linguistic and ethnic diversity of Ukraine, can you just generally explain 
what kind of country we're dealing with, it's at least a bilingual country. Right. It is indeed at least a bilingual country. Uh, I am myself an ethnic Russian. My native, uh, my mother tongue is Russian and for the same for my family. This does not, however, uh, suggest anything in the political sense. Uh, and the language was never really a problem in Ukraine. It's only uh, foolish politicians, or I would say evil, now I could even say, you know, evil politicians who try to polarize the Ukrainian society to create divisions or to exacerbate the existing divisions who would try to play this linguistic card, uh, but that it's only to weaken the Ukrainian society. And uh, in terms of ethnicity, well, the Ukrainian ethnicity, the, the, the Ukrainian ethnic nation is, of course, a predominant one in Ukraine. But uh, Ukraine also has a very sizable ethnic Russian population. And also there is uh, quite a significant segment of the Russian-speaking ethnic Ukrainians. And we cannot really say that they were Russified at some point. No, this is just history uh, happened. So they are naturally Russian-speaking ethnic Ukrainians. So uh, many, of the, um, many of the explanations for the current situations that are based on uh, the linguistic situation or on the ethnic situation, they are all wrong. This is not an ethnic war. This is not what was happening in Yugoslavia in the 90s. This is not an ethnic, this is not a religious war. This war is based on a very different understanding and visions of the political development of Russia and of Ukraine and of the entire region. You do explain in your latest article in the Falta that Crimea has traditionally been part of um, the Russian imperialist mythology. And we can talk about previous Russian empires probably a little bit later on. Um, but the Donbass wasn't. And that this argument about the threat uh, towards Russian speakers comes about as a, as a legitimating lie, right? It does allude to existing historical tensions and a, and a real history of the region animosity towards uh, speakers of minority languages in Romania, in Slovakia, but it sort of exploits a historical memory for the sake of justifying the annexation of the Donbass. Why does Putin need the Donbass and Crimea? And why does he ultimately need Ukraine? Is it a, an imperialist fantasy or is it some kind of um, necessity that he's trying to fulfill here? Uh, let me start with Crimea. As you correctly mentioned, I, I did refer in one of my recent pieces uh, to Crimea as being part of the uh, imperialistic mythology of the, of the Russian Federation. If you look, you know, Crimea was attached to uh, Ukraine in 1954. Uh, that was a region, the, the reason why it was attached to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian Socialist Soviet Republic, was because Crimea was, um, well, it was a very fringe region. It was uh, almost completely de-industrialized. It was a region that Russia did want to develop. 
And uh, for many for many reasons, including logistic re reasons, it was attached to the Ukrainian Socialist Republic that developed Crimea. Uh, I cannot, of course, say that it became the 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 most developed region uh, in in Ukraine, but it was much better than it had been when it was part of the Russian uh, Republic, Russian Soviet Republic. So, and since then, but I would say mostly since the uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Empire in 1991, Crimea, the the idea of Crimea leaving Ukraine and joining Russia was a persistent idea that was a persistent narrative in much of the uh, politicized cultural production of the Russian Federation. Even if you look at the at films, the idea of, you know, so this uh, in quotation marks, you know, returning Crimea to Russia, uh, if you look at the at the uh, textbooks, historical textbooks, or even uh, textbooks on international relations, or uh, textbooks on uh, geopolitics that uh, have been produced in Russia since the 90s, you will see this persistent idea that Crimea belongs to Russia. And although uh, Russia signed all the documents, all the agreements with Ukraine, and also with the international community, totally acknowledging the fact that Crimea was a legitimate part of Ukraine. Nevertheless, the 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 social uh, the, the social narratives, the historical narratives, something that was pushed persistently pushed on the Russian society was that Crimea did not belong to Ukraine. That was never the case of the Donbass. Um, Donbass simply, it doesn't really exist in the Russian mythology. Donbass only exists in the Russian mythology as part of Ukraine that should belong to the Russian sphere of influence. Uh, not, not the Donbass as a separate uh, entity, but just as part of entire Ukraine that needs to belong to the Russian sphere of influence. There was but an it's more, idea, very... more like in a form of like a tributary state in, in sphere of influence that can be technically a separate state, but should follow a Russian lead or as like an integral country? Or does this does this fantasy allow for multiple versions, do you think? Um, yeah, it does allow for multiple versions. And uh, there was one project uh, in the in the beginning of the Russian war against Ukraine in spring 2014, so-called Novorossiya or New Russia. This is the region which is is basically uh, stretching from uh, Donbas, from the Donbas in the east of uh, of the of, of the Ukrainian state to Odessa. So it takes it's, it's like a strip including uh, actually not including Crimea but a strip that stretches uh, from the east to the uh, southwestern Ukraine uh, and that was one also one of the myth myths uh, it didn't really um, stick uh, to, to to the Russian society or to this mythology because at some point uh, Putin the Kremlin decided no 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 new Russia Novorossiya is not enough it's entire Ukraine that should be subjugated. Uh, that should be. That should be. And it it, it shouldn't be even. Uh, you know, some 
oblasts or regions within Russia. Now it can be like a separate state, but in union with Russia and Belarus. And basically the idea of um, of, uh, of Ukraine in the mindset of the Kremlin elites, including uh, Putin, is like Ukraine should become like a Belarus. Belarus has no independence or it lost its independence completely now. Lukashenko is essentially, he's a vassal of, of Putin's. And this is the, uh, this is the future, or at least this is how the Kremlin elites project the future of the Ukrainian state with no national awareness, with the facade of a statehood. That's quite unsettling. And indeed, I wanted to ask you at least briefly about Belarus, which is right now acting as like a blank space on the map, sort of for the Russian army to move, um, move through into Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine seems to seems to take Belarus more seriously as a country than Belarus uh, or the current Belarusian leadership seems to do it for themselves. And at you least see, as in f filing an international suit against them. Uh, indeed, uh, Belarus is now uh, it's a puppet. It's a puppet regime. Uh, it used to be a more or less independent uh, from Russia. Belarus, even under Lukashenko, it tried to, um, so to say, to sit on two chairs. Um, you know, uh, trying to. Uh, uh, try to develop some relations with the EU, with the West, but also uh, keeping, maintaining re good relations with Russia. But now it has totally and completely took the Russian side and it lost its independence. What it is important and what is important here, and it's more of a, I don't know how you say, you know, historical, ethical, moral uh, aspect to it is that Belarusians never fought against Ukrainians in, in the entire history of the existence of these two nations. And Ukrainians never fought against Belarusians. Uh, even uh, during the Soviet times when uh, Ukraine had a, uh, a nationalist background that tried to uh, overthrow the Soviet regime in Ukraine, it was never the case that Ukrainians would fight against Belarusians. Those were the Russians or the puppet regimes of the Russians that the Ukrainians would fight against. So Lukashenko now is playing a very, very dangerous card of trying to make these two nations enemies. And this is a history. This is not only like a war crime. This is also an ethical crime of history of the existence and living together. Uh, with you know with the ukrainians and belarusians what do you think um about the solidarity between everyday people of these countries means for this situation do you think it will change politics either in belarus or in russia no uh, we have seen that neither of these two leaders um cares about what's happening to their uh, societies, what's happening to their own people. Uh, these are two totally cynical leaders who will rule by force, by terror, and by blood, and by rape, and by everything else. 
they don't care. And Belarus actually gave an example to the Russian leadership how far you can go in order to subjugate your own people, to terrorize and rape them into submission. What happened in Belarus, all these protests and how they were repressed, this gave an example to the Russian leadership how far you can go and what you can do uh, to one of the Slavic nations. What They became really dangerous. And Putin has not yet used this tactic that Lukashenko used in his own country. So there is a, there is a capacity for Putin to go even further than what, is he, what he is doing now. This, this should be very clear. And after all, people who are protesting against, against Lukashenko's regime, against Putin's regime, against the war in Ukraine, they are a minority. The majority of the population uh, simply try to, you know, it's like it's a like self-alienation from, from what is happening, from the developments. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to think about it. And the people who are protesting, they are in the minority and the leadership of those countries don't give the slightest about what the societies are saying. I've been thinking a lot about Zelensky's direct address uh, in Russian to Russians saying, why do you need this? Put down your weapons and go home and save your lives. Just abandon the fields. Do you think this is like a means to raise Ukrainian morale? Or is there really something that he's alluding to? Uh, what, what Zelensky, I think, is trying to do is to minimize as much as he can the, uh, the, the killings in Ukraine. He is, after all, the president of the Ukrainians. And he wants to save every, you know, he wants to, like, to save uh, as many Ukrainians as possible. So this address of his uh, aimed at the Russian society. Uh, this is not, I, I probably he thinks or his advisors think that they can change the, the mood in the Russian society, uh, that uh, they would uh, convince Russians not to uh, send their uh, kids and their sons and, and, and fathers and uh, husbands to the war in Ukraine but at least maybe on the individual level, even if one soldier, if even one officer decides to go back to face the tribunal, to face whatever, but not to lose their lives, it means that less Ukrainians will be killed. It is, I think, is as simple as that. A prisoner of war in certain countries is better off than in their own, um, in some cases. And Tim Snyder did recently point out that Many Russian speakers are much freer in Ukraine than in Russia. So it's um, it's also an interesting bet on the individual level, but it definitely won't disarm uh, one of the one of the Earth's biggest militaries. Let's talk a little bit about not a little bit. Let's talk a hell of a lot about, well, your specialty, the European far right and their extremely shady connections with the Kremlin. The Putin regime famously, and this has been your topic of research, um, 
for a long time. The Putin reg regime has famously put a lot of effort into buying connections, um, paying Western politicians and trying to sort of bottle them up, put them in their pockets. In a recent Bloomberg piece you interviewed, you point out that many of these cushy board seats and sort of fake jobs have become quite uncomfortable for Western elites, while others don't seem to be quite so very. Tell us about this and tell us about why it seems that that being friends with Putin has not really been a good political bet for the far right. Um, it is a very good question. And uh, I would say that um, there has been uh, there has been a, a sort of um, disaffection, even disappointment on the part of the far right um, in their dealings and in their relations with Russia for quite some time now. So they didn't start today, they didn't start with the war. But what happened is that many of them, oh, well, first of all, the, the, the European far right needed Russia more than Russia needed them. Uh, that became quite clear for many far right politicians, for many far right um, organizations and parties. They realized that uh, Putin, and by saying Putin, I, I don't mean Putin personally, uh, because he's not dealing with, you know, these uh, relations which are not, you know, significant enough uh, for his own position. It's it's other people who are dealing with these. Uh, but I'm talking about the regime. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the Putin regime would be happy to use them to exploit them when he when when they needed the far right. But they would easily abandon them uh, if they wanted to pursue some other uh, to pursue relations with other uh, political actors in the same country. Well, probably we can't really sympathize with them, right? But they are not total lunatics. Yeah, they are. Uh, after all, they are uh, politicians, and some of them are smart. Yeah. And they realize that that Russia is just using them, and and Russia would not help them when they needed that help. Marine Le Pen, it's it's one of the examples uh, when it needed support from the Russian state uh, to run uh, in the elections. Uh, yes, in 2014, uh, she received uh, this bank loan of nine million euros to run the to, to participate in the regional elections, but afterwards she wouldn't receive any money or any significant amount of money to run in the presidential elections or to run in the parliamentary elections, uh, where and, and she needed the, that financial support, but it wasn't provided. Uh, to her party, to, to first the Front National, and then um, you know it was renamed into Rassemblement National. Uh, she didn't get that money that she needed from the Russians. So there is this disappointment, I think. And uh, uh, what what's happening today is that they look at the situation and they can see, well, we don't really get anything from this. And now these connections, they have become too toxic because there is such a strong um, consensus about the Russian aggression against Ukraine and Russia has become a pariah. It's no longer a leader. It lost 
its moral authority. And even people on the far right understand this. Uh, I'm quite sure that some of the marginal, some of the really fringe probably uh, organization would, would still stick with Russia, uh, with, with Putin's regime. But the majority of radical right-wing populist parties, you know, those parties who uh, support at least the idea of democracy, that, you know, they are not uh, calling for the overthrow of, uh, of, democratic, uh, of the democratic order, you know, countries, oh, sorry, uh, parties like the Freedom Party of Austria, like IFD, um, uh, Alternative for Germany, like Rassemblement uh, National in France, uh, they have two options. Uh, one option is to un uh, unambiguously condemn Russia's war against Ukraine. And uh, as far as I understand, Marine Le Pen did something like that, uh, which was, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest here, which was a surprise for me, because I thought that she would remain loyal to Putin's regime till the bitter end. Uh, but she surprised me, really. Um, and the other option is to say that we are neutral. We take, we embrace the neutralist position, and this is what the Austrian far right is doing right now. Um, and I think that uh, this is a position which is uh, quite sincere, on the at least on the part of the Austrian far right. Uh, they can always say, well, Austria is neutral. We are criticizing the sanctions. We think that diplomacy is a way uh, to solve the, the, this, uh, this problem. And they can refer to the actual history of the Austrian far right taking a neutralist stance towards both the Western alliance and to, and to Russia and even the Soviet Union. There was a time when the Austrian far right was um, was having this uh, very strong neutralist position. You know who cannot boast a history of neutrality? Hungary. And yet again, we arrive to Viktor Orban, my least favorite yet all pervasive topic. Hungary is the last EU member standing who actively tries to curb the united efforts against Russia, formally siding with the country's actual allies, NATO, and the EU, but using every technicality to slow down or oppose the realization of those actions. Now they're denying to let military aid cross the country, the very same military aid they even voted for. Indeed, Hungary under Orban has been quite problematic um, in, in, in the context of the situation around Ukraine. And uh, Viktor Orban is now, I think, he, he is being quite concerned about the elections that are coming up. I'm not a specialist on Hungary, but uh, from what I know by following some of the developments is that he has a chance to lose against the unified united opposition in Hungary. And these elections are coming up very, very shortly like many other uh, far-right leaders, they found themselves in these uh, gray zone on foreign policy, uh, not really knowing what to do and how to reposition themselves. And uh, uh, also another thing, and I would agree with some of the Hungarian experts who I think starting from 2011, 2012, were writing that uh, Orban's change 
uh, in his position towards Russia has something to do or may have something to do with some compromising materials against him that Russia might have. And this, I think, also the reason uh, and, you know, this um, Russia and the Soviet Union before that, they are have been you know, notorious for uh, using, um, for, for massively using uh, what is known as compromat, yeah, those compr compromising materials that can be used against politicians. And, yeah, I hope uh, I hope you don't mind me in intersecting you and saying that, uh, you know, there is a, a vast amount of compromising document freely available about Viktor Orban and uh, the reason he still manages to win elections or sustain uh, his his power in Hungary is uh, extreme state capture and media capture, um, isolation of a huge part of the electorate to whom um, the only offer that he actually made, and this is a fact and not um, speculation, which I'm a big fan of, the, by the way, so I'm not against that. But what we do know is that um, Orban's biggest promise or his biggest bribe towards the electorate is what what's called the Rezicekentesh. That's a war declared on the utility prices, a very controversial, extremely ridiculous um, scheme, obviously benefiting um, disproportionately the the higher consumers, so the the rich, obviously as a most of their conservative social policy does. And he visited Putin this January to appeal for the uh, increase in gas imports from Russia at an artificially repressed price ahead of the elections because he's intent on maintaining the artificially low gas prices because apparently the Hungarian electorate responds most sensitively to uh to individual quality of life and changes in that so there's a very obvious thing there it's it's energy policy and um and it's also kind of uh kind of interesting to think how it took germany quite a while to come to terms with um having to take a risk or having to take a, a risk of recession when reacting to the um, to the invasion against Ukraine, because they're so beholden to Russian gas imports. Yeah, it's not only it's not only um, energy imports. It's also the question of the of Russia buying parts of the German elites, business elites, and political elites, and um, I well. The, the 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 most infamous case is Gerhard Schröder, who is essentially owned by Putin's regime, and he is a person who was a chancellor of Germany, and uh, now yeah he's an asset yeah he I wouldn't call him an agent he's not an agent he's a he's a Russian asset, and um, uh, he's not the only one he may be the the most infamous one but he's not the only one. And it also plays a great role in um, what was happening with Germany, uh, with its hesitance. And at some point, I think there was even among uh, some experts, not all experts, but among some experts, and I, an understanding that in this war um, of Russia 
against Ukraine and I would say against the entire West, Germany was part of the problem and not part of the solution because of so many uh, politicians and businesses being tied to the Russian Federation and uh, uh, actually serving their personal interests uh, that were linked to the to advancing Russian foreign policy interests. I still want to ask you a little bit about the the recent U.S. response uh, involvement or partial involvement, at least in the military conflict. But before that, I think it's important to talk about what um, the individual listener can do uh, to help Ukrainians in this situation. You also started your own petition with a very specific goal. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, um, I would just um, um, confirm that now there are many ways that uh, people can help Ukraine, um, help Ukrainian army, uh, help the Ukrainian society. My own idea was uh, was to try to help uh, Ukrainian applicants who are who applied or are applying for. Uh, bachelor, for master, and for PhD positions to Western universities this year. And the petition is about um, appealing to Western universities to give, to prioritize Ukrainian applicants, all things being equal, but to prioritize Ukrainian applicants this year. Uh, this is also an appeal to uh, to nations, to Western nations, uh, to businesses, to charity organizations, to individual donors, individual uh, philanthropes, um, to cooperate close uh, to 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 cooperate closely with universities to uh, to provide funds uh, to universities to also not only to prioritize the the applications themselves coming from Ukraine, but also to provide funds to provide um, tuition fee waivers to Ukraine, to successful Ukrainian applicants and to maintenance grants. This is very important and this will remain very important uh, for years to come. But I think this year is especially significant. Uh, Ukraine will need young people uh, who are who have been strengthened by the Western expertise because it will need it will need them for the reconstruction of the state for development of future Ukraine. And after all, investing in the Ukrainian talent is also an investment into the European talent. And it's also an investment into the Western economic and political success. As a bit of a bonus question, I wanted to ask you about the Biden administration's response. This current presidency is, <laughs> to put it very mildly, very different. You've been listening to Gogolin, the Eurozine podcast with Anton Shekovtsov. And if you want more, you can listen to his take on the recent changes in U.S. international affairs, the Biden administration's non-interventionist stance, and Donald Trump's surprising comments on Vladimir Putin's tactical genius. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Should you be a benevolent billionaire or a philanthropic institution wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for a European public sphere, you can also contact us directly. 
You can find all the relevant information at eurozine.com support. But this episode wouldn't have been possible without our patrons, Stefan Lemetzal, Denise Joy, Dora Pop, Eva Marx, Judith Chikos, Vox Europe, Riley Scott, Anke Tienen, Mike Walker, Anne Patterson, James Donette, Lauren Beck, Franz Lagedeer, Sophie Lewis, Jofia Pop, Seanette Pugh Rollins, Richard Gladhill, Gunnar D. Hanson, and the very speaker, Anton Shekovtsov. Thank you so much. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us, and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. I've been Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.